Hey guys, due to entirely foreseen, totally avoidable circumstances, Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata is going to go on a two-week hiatus. We know this is a disappointment and that nothing can make up for it, that we alone send a shining beam of meaning into otherwise meaningless lives lived by rote. As an apology, we'll instead put out two episodes of an experimental thing we're doing called Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata colon Podcast Guys Talking to Erratic Errata. So get hype! Podcast Guys takes a long view and a long price. Spoilers will be commonplace. Listen at your own risk. Good morning, faithful reader. Welcome, fortunate seeker. This is Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata. Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata is a whirlwind reread of a practical guide to evil, where... A historian. And a literature scholar. Tackle the big questions about one of the greatest novels of the age, such as... Can Cat reform the Empire? When the hard choices come, will Cat flinch? And can the monsters in Cat's soul get any worse? Than zombies? How? Power is mostly a matter of making the right corpses at the right time. Dread Empress, Militia the First. Our current Dread Empress is right. Making the right corpse at the right time is a very powerful thing, but you have to be careful with it. Because to use what I think is our third in-universe idiom, after you've made a corpse, it is too late to put the pot back together. Which is something I really appreciate about EE's writing. You get these idioms that tell you about the history and culture of the people without being told. I mean, yes, naturally being idioms are told, but they're really shown naturally appearing. And it kind of feels like how we know about the Proto-Indo-European culture, because we know what words they likely had. Here we kind of get a lens into the daily lives of people in a fictional world that we never really get to investigate too closely at a common level because of their idioms. A lot of pig idioms. They're swine people. That said, it is important to note that like a broken pot, it is technically possible to fix a corpse, especially in this universe. It gets done a couple of times. Like chapter six fixing or chapter peregrine fixing? Yep, exactly. And like that, you know, you could fix a pot by kind of just cludging it together, or you can fix a pot by doing an artwork on it. And uh, I gotta say, one of those things is a little more interesting. Hats <clears throat> mounts. Yeah. Welcome to Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Rata, where we hate the pilgrim. And you can too. If it helps any, I only think that I need to mention him once or twice in the next chapter or two, so we won't spend too much time talking about him 300 chapters before he shows up. Speaking of cold-blooded murderers, however, right away in the second paragraph, Kat says, So first you talk me into killing the guards. 
They had it coming, sure. But would I have made that call if you weren't egging me on? Not so sure. And I I love our wretched little girl because she is a day into her association with, not even apprenticeship of evil. And she says, would I have committed cold blood and murder on my own? Maybe. Sure. But you might have encouraged me to it. So she's honest with herself. She's honest with herself and, of course, is, again, a day after the murder, trying to weasel out of responsibility by blaming those closest to her, which doesn't necessarily include Black at this point. But as far as characters go, in from a story perspective, Black is the person with whom she's exchanged the most words. So we, we get a, a bad thing happened. Well, here's the person who's nearest to me. It was clearly their fault. And that's also I will not share the blame or the responsibility, and this is all mine. No one else can have it. Which does, which I, I think is an interesting thing to say, considering how the conversation with Black goes uh, a bit down the line, since he makes that exact claim and Cat attempts to throw that back in his face and gets an actual response out of him. It's in the it's in a point that we're actually going to probably discuss quite a bit, um, but. Fate is the coward's way out, Catherine, he spat out. It's the denial of personal responsibility. Every decision I have made was my own choice, and all consequences that come from it are on my head. And the response, considering the kind of things you've done, I'm not sure that's a selling point. The flash of anger I'd seen in him was gone as quickly as it appeared, replaced by the usual indifferent facade. He takes responsibility, and Cat uses that as ammunition against him, and there's some friction there. But also such a moment of learning. My exact note on that portion of the text is, Black is such a mentor for Cat. Quote, I rebuke fate and I damn myself. And he molds her exactly in his image. Doesn't have to do too much. But what he does is perfectly done. She is her father's daughter. The, the fate thing is very interesting. That he's, you know, He refers to it as fate is the coward's way out. There's the molding fate. Uh, that comes up it's very interesting that perspective from black and obviously cat adopts that uh and adapts that i suppose but those these two more so than almost anyone else in the story spend most of their time directly interacting with fate through manipulation more than anything but almost directly interacting with fate and it's they're not relying on fate in the way that black seems to be talking about here as being a bad thing but it's so inherent to so many of their plans the way they interact with other people they rely on fate to control other people but do their best to not let it affect themselves and i I, it's i enjoy the way that black has such a disdainful opinion of those who are reliant on fate and so he just uses uses that tool constantly there's a there's a hierarchy that he's building in cat's mind that cat probably was uh predisposed towards but there's a hierarchy he's building very forward very very early very immediately what without being entirely explicit about it so many things between the calamities and the woe the intergenerational transformation of preoccupation and fixation cat's battle with fate takes a very distinct hue when fate reveals herself to be embodied in so many ways i don't mean to misread and say that the bard 
simply is fate, but the intercessor has set herself up in the eyes of the gods as fatalistic, if I may. May I? I think you can. But what it all boils down to, what that portion of the main thrust of the entire series boils down to, is still the same antagonistic relationship with fate. Mm -hmm. That Black here in the fourth chapter of the entire piece does not monologue about, he is too disciplined a villain for that, but cannot resist a detailed comment on such is his passion. Not just too disciplined a villain, but also too honestly respectful of Catherine. It's monologues are for the people that you've bested, not for the person you're training. It I think that's a, a good thing to keep in mind is yeah, the the gut reaction of Cat and Black about the bard seems to just be pretty pretty hostile pretty quickly. And tying it back to this moment, tying it back to this discussion that kind of interweaves its way through the plot for the whole story is interesting. I think that I think that adds a layer to the bard's not just a very dangerous enemy or, you know, a, a dangerous force of meta nature to be dealt with, but something that is personally offensive to both of these people. Don't want to draw our attention too far away from this point in the story. But I think there is, however, a fundamental difference in the way the two end up grappling with fate. Both are master uh, name lore manipulators by the end of the story. Black already is here. Catherine rapidly grows into that mantle. But in the end, in both of their climacies, uh, we see different approaches to the way they deal with the unfortunate fact of fate. Whether or not they mean to rebuke it, they still have to cope with it. That's what name lore is. Uh, but in his final moments, Black embraces the chains of fate in such a way that he sets fate into motion as an engine of his own will. He has so arranged everything. He has every point in place and he gives his life and his life's work into having fate pointed where he needs it. And Catherine's zenith is her defeat of fate, which she has been dodging the strictures of for so long until she could finally strangle it in its own, with its own tethers. Not that fate is then forever and ever vanquished, but it is leashed, it is twinned. I'm making fate all about the intercessor again, but you know what? So does she. <laughs> she does. And that's also the way that the two handle it too. Black, you know, you kind of alluded to this. Black is controls it. He he to use his aspect, Black conquers it. He he goes about it in a warlike fashion. I mean, when he deals with the bard, one of the scenes that sticks out in my mind later on is the fact that he sets up traps and then sits in a place and waits for the bard to try to talk to him so that he can kill her three times. And that's a very interesting way of handling fate. Black is the Black Knight. He conquers. He is a military fella. Cat has a subtler hand on things. She, yes, she's incredibly personally powerful and makes use of that frequently. But she also, you know, she's the warden. She's guiding. She's above it and, and has her hand on what's going on and nudges things. Turns out it's the play. <laughs> Uh, but, you know, you can see that sort of in what you were talking about, those the scenes you were referencing, there's a, a level of subtlety, a level of how heavily one's hand is on the wheel 
uh, a comparison between the two of them that I think really plays into their names in a way that is worth keeping in mind when we are two chapters from now when Black is explaining aspects and how riding too close to them controls how you do things. And maybe that's Black has spent so long being the Black Knight that he, despite all of his incredible talents and his scheming, he does kind of have one way of dealing with things in and that he just has to conquer them and that that's a wide umbrella to put his actions under and it works for the most part but he's a he's a conqueror and i mean it's it it's it's worth keeping in mind i think as we go forward and we shall the high-minded and metaphysical priorities of our protagonists aside i do want to note also their uh or rather catherine's more simplistic and comical rather than dramatic proclivities uh she she feels very threatened at this moment uh she recognizes the danger not necessarily that she is in but the danger inherent to the villain with whom she is now near alone in a room and the way she characterizes her actions is to quote some part of me felt backed into a corner and i'd only ever reacted one way to that come out swinging sometimes yelling as loud as i could okay sure yeah a brute full frontal offensive great that is cat she's not wrong the place where she chooses to say this about herself is i could have circled the room and sat across from black but that would have been playing his game, and I'd done quite enough of that tonight. I kicked back the governor's padded seat and plopped myself onto it with the closest thing to nonchalance I could muster, with my heart beating in my ears like it currently was. She says, I'm going to come out swinging, and she sits in the chair that she's not supposed to. <laughs> she is a drama queen, like none but her father, and I love her for it. Like none but her father and the soon-to-be tyrant. She is and I, but i think calling someone a drama queen in this story is pretty powerful <laughs> drama lends actual weight to some of the things you can do and uh being the queen of that that's where you want to be again the big bad is a bard very true this is very much a setting of wait he has an arts degree dun 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 this conversation uh that we're sort of in the middle of here is fantastic because we're this is one of the early places where the goofy fun quippiness of this story is you know it's there from the beginning i guess is what i'm saying it sometimes it feels like it picks up late in later chapters but it's always been there with uh cat uh, says i kept my face blank you could be lying and black's response is i am a splendid liar and I, I just maddie is a cutie he's just He's just a fun guy. Just not I'm a good liar. He's a splendid liar. It's it's a thing of beauty. It's it's art. It's fun. It's it's just very black knight. And then he goes on with something that fictional characters love to do but doesn't actually mean anything. I'm good at lying, but I'm not lying right now because the truth is valuable, which again isn't <laughs> friend that's not evidence in favor of you telling the truth when there's no other evidence in absence of other evidence that's that's meaningless the thing about our characters is he knows it cat knows it right there he's just in a position of power he's revealing his hand because he can and because it doesn't mean anything because he might not be revealing his hand is that a lesson for cat eh. <laughs> the 
next bit here where we've sort of talked about this already, but this is another, this is a point that sometimes when E.E. E. is writing, he kind of just goes hard. You've got this line that Kat quotes uh, from a sermon, the to take the mantle of a name is to embrace the strands of fate. And we've talked about this, we've talked about the fate, but just the actual way the line is written. There are, there are points in this where this story reads like a very, very well done young adult novel where people are quipping back and forth and it's fun and, you know, you love the characters and you love the way they interact with each other. And, you know, there are parts where you're enjoying the, the world building. And then there are parts where you are reading something epic <laughs> in all senses of the word. And it's it's just a lot of fun when those crop up in conversations. And the masterful juxtaposition of the two in a way that doesn't taint one with the other or frankly even like some other great novels of the age like Gideon the Ninth doesn't make the entire piece seem comic even where the bent is entirely serious is a difficult line to tread and E.E. pulls it off without I think not to as the youth say simp not without a moment of dissonance in all near 700 chapters. It, it's very easy that it's a it's very easy to have comedy and drama in a work, and it's very easy when doing so to have that line blur in a way that, like you said, detracts from one or the other, and that can be horribly jarring. And yes, I didn't feel that way, Bart. There's never a moment where the mood is ruined by a character dropping a goofy one-liner in during tragedy except where it that's not true hmm it is true there's never a place where the moment is ruined by a goofy one-liner being dropped by a character during a moment of tragedy there are somewhat goofy one-liners dropped during moments of tragedy but it's done in a way that makes you hate the bard rather than detracting from the situation so it's it's masterful i guess is what we're both saying it's masterful <laughs> also masterful is the name of the orphanage. Did you notice this? The Tragically Orphaned? Yes, Lore House for Tragically Orphaned Girls. Mm -hmm. That's Is there a house for, you know, casually orphaned girls? The Lore House for Emancipated Youth? The Lore House for eh, girls that kind of had a rough go, but it's all right. They're doing fine now. I also want to note that here we are told that Scribe never had a home, and it is literally over 600 chapters before that is investigated directly. It's some deep foreshadowing. So I have a question. There is something I did not find myself able to spell out that Catherine claims here. As she is considering the paths by which one can ascend in crazy hierarchical structure, she says... In, she notes, of course, that the legions are a primary and, her, to her, desirable route. But, quote, there were other ways to get higher up in the ranks of the Empire, after all, even for Callowans. How else is a Callowan going to get anywhere into the structure of the Dread Empire? That is a good question. I'm wondering, it seems unlikely that any previously, that any previous nobility or current nobility, but that any temporarily embarrassed nobility would be given a role like Mazas has or had. Um, and so that doesn't seem like the Red. way. <laughs> so that doesn't seem like the key. It seems incredibly unlikely that a that any of the noble houses in Prace would 
for instance, marry a Kalowin and get them and into pollute the, line the bloodline. Right. Pollute the hot, hot bloodline. Exactly. I'm wondering. There's there's the method that Cat actually goes for. I don't know if she's referencing that, but names. There's. Hmm. All I can think of are collaborator mid to low level bureaucrats, perhaps, which doesn't feel Catherine to me. Yeah, there's even there's collaborators that don't become bureaucrats. I imagine you could work your way up other organizations. You know, her plan is to military and rise to the ranks. The eyes of the empire have to recruit locals to function and said locals are probably overseen at some level by other locals to an extent that's very fair is she aware so, of the eyes of the empire aware of such an apparatus sure like right i don't know that she would be able to say yes the eyes of the empire function such and such way but she may say the empire she may be aware the empire has spies and so there's that she may be aware that the empire has spies the girl who was greeted in alley, who was greeted in alley by the great conqueror, who said, "Hey, Catherine. Oh, also, it's the next day now. But by the way, I'm going to talk about the money you have hidden in the orphanage. We know about that too. Yeah, there might be spies. Or he's a really good guesser. Right. So there's spies. There's military. There's. He is a really good guesser, though. Yeah, I guess it. I think guessing becomes a little easier when creation gets ruts worn into it and certain paths are followed instinctually by the powerful people in the world. That's all to say. This seems very plausible. I don't mean to point this out as error or discontinuity or anything. It is a point of unclarity, which is by all means acceptable. Just close reading this, fam. And to be fair, Kat is an orphan in a conquered state. She may not be fully aware of how people at even a step or two of a step or two higher in society than her would function there it could be in her mind if i become a wealthy enough merchant i can make change if i become the best captain on a merchant vessel i could affect you know she's a she's very smart and you know fairly well educated but she's still somebody who to make an extra bit of coin fights in something called the pit i think there's a level of society where the details are a little fuzzy and that level is pretty low before you know the the threshold is pretty low for her and so it very well could be there are other ways to get get higher in the ranks and in her mind you don't need to be that high to affect real change maybe not to mention you say she is educated oh who wrote the curriculum? I live in a country where we're routinely taught that anything is achievable, and the economic system is really bent against that. It's very believable that similar propaganda exists in Callow. Very true. Strange, though. I live in a country like that, too. Oh, very free of us. Speaking of, I don't know, overly ambitious goals, can we just mention the fact that Kat thinks she's going to give Black a scar if he wants her dead? What is that about? Okay, I know what that's about. That's Catherine. She has the same bullheaded overconfidence when she's in the Everdark. But Catherine, my dude, lol. I think we just I think we just have to understand and this'll I'll mention this again before too long. Cat really doesn't understand what the level of power named like her her, her understanding of how powerful named are is 
drastic drastically out of line with reality in both directions at various points the named are powerful they can take on a whole fortress of soldiers and then at one point she moves slightly quicker than she used to be able to and is in awe of how powerful that is her her estimation of what a name does is a little rough around the edges at this point which also very good writing on ee's part i think it's easy to say ah she doesn't understand how powerful it is or she doesn't understand how limited it is but to have that very realistic just blurry view of what something is when you don't know spectacular i have no concept of what a truck can really do because i am sure there is terrain that i would think wouldn't be a big deal that is and i'm sure that there are things that i would not think are possible that it could just drag around i don't know it's a truck they do stuff and to add to that, a couple chapters ago, which is a couple of a day ago, maybe two days ago, whatever it is, Kat's a little vague on how actually existent names are. They are, uh, you know, that thing that's rumored or what have you. The calamities exist, sure, but what does a name actually mean? And now she's diving full into them and again thinks she's going to scar Black, who is it might be worth mentioning, still wearing armor. Needless to say, Cat is a bold one. Needless to say, Cat has a skewed view of reality. On both sides of her hoping she'll be able to scar Black as he kills her, she totally misunderestimates her desire for an independent, self-determined Callow. Right before her thought, she says that she doesn't care, quote, whether we pay our taxes to the tower or not, but someone has to rein in the idiots when they get vicious and the Legion is my best bet to get into that place. No, Catherine does care. She ends up caring immensely about the tower being in control because it just shouldn't be. Her love for independent Callow grows and grows. And immediately after, she tries to build this huge argument about why independence is not going to be the way. And what? Try to restore the kingdom? We're fresh out of royals. And even if I managed to dig up some claimant, getting him on the throne would be a bloody mess. How many thousands would die fighting the empire? More than it's worth. Let's go to four chapters later, five chapters, six chapters, when she very deliberately sets exactly that emotion. And it turns out to be exactly that. But when she sees a chance, she can't help but take it. She has no idea what she wants. She hasn't admitted to herself that's all she cares about. And that's great. It's very, very well done that we can read into that here in this discussion where her plan is nothing is chaos and her intentions are a blur and then within a full chapter's worth of text we are dealing with cat's soul telling her just have a plan in place before you do things what are you you're you're flying you're you're flying blind you're you're making mistakes because you aren't thinking about things basically this isn't just cat being this isn't just a character saying things that don't make sense this is cat's flawed understanding of how to accomplish things coming out in her discussion with black and that's it's very cool to see and again it is very worth explicitly at least bringing up that line how many thousands would die fighting the empire more than it's worth thousands dying fighting the empire to free Callow from the Empire, not worth it. Thousands dying so that Kat can get a little more influential within the Empire so that she can have a little more influence over Callow while it's still under the Empire. That's great stuff right there. That is that is the foundation on which a healthier Callow is built. Shortly after this, too, we have uh, Black in these early chapters actually compliments Kat quite a bit. He's 
not someone who is hesitant about he's a pretty honest person for all that he's very deceitful if somebody does something well and it's worth pointing it out when especially when he's in a teaching position he does so but the highest compliment i think he pays cat in any of these early chapters maybe ever is i was wrong black said though he didn't sound like he was admitting an error you never could have become a hero you lack the mindset for it black and by extension, Cat really doesn't have much of a respect for he heroes, for their mindset, for their code of conduct, whatever you want to call it. And telling Cat, you would have made a bad hero. No, you would have been a dangerous hero to fight because you would have been clev more too clever, anything like that. No, no, no. You just do not have the mindset to be these people that I have no respect for. And I just, I, I just, I really appreciate that Black is so willing to just lay it out like that for Cat, just to be so complimentary so quickly. It's a beautiful relationship between father and daughter. Mm hmm. <laughs> and opening up the conversation about heroism brings him to the job offer of Squire, where Catherine here said it's Squire and not Squire. And she notes he didn't have to raise his voice to make the capitalized letter clear. It's really convenient to us that Catherine can read and write. Otherwise, we'd have to have so many regular and increasingly awkward descriptions of just, there was something about the way he said Squire. Right. Something different about the word. We do get a lot of the universe quaked, the universe shivered, the blah, 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 blah. And that's great. But that she has a direct way to just indicate, no, this is a name and not a name. When she doesn't even have open access editing tools like Audacity is amazing. <laughs> we, following this, there's, there's a little bit of a discussion about how one comes into a name, which I think is worth at least touching on it's obviously the next several chapters i don't recall exactly how many but there are many chapters coming up that deal with her transition into being named her coming fully into that role all of these things but the point here that i think is interesting is uh, after the offer cat asks i thought people with names picked themselves and Black responds with, they do to an extent, but you have the potential, and given the intertwined natures of that role in mind, I have a degree of influence over the nomination. The names that we see people come into, it never feels like picking themselves. It never feels like a person saying, I'm going to become a name, I'm, I'm going to acquire this role, except Kat becoming the warden. She very explicitly shapes that for a long time. But it, it it's it feels the reverse. It feels like the sort of thing that plays into the what Black was talking about previously. It feels more like fate and uh, the gods above and below, of course, to say that the people the the named themselves have chosen to become named. I don't know. There's a there's part of that that doesn't fit in with how I understand names after having read this work, and I'm wondering if there's a layer to what he's talking about that isn't necessarily clear here we are all born free but for every man and woman comes a time where a choice must be made it is we are told the only choice that ever really matters which is to say uh that quote being from the first page of the book of all things the initial epigraph of the entire series I don't disagree with you about the hand of fate, but with the exception of some of the tragedy-based names, like the Harrowed Witch or the Scorched Apostate, yes, there is a hand of fate, and very clearly people are getting into these ruts. But like a rut on a path, it isn't an inevitability. 
And even outside of the true hero, Cordelia Hassenbach, rejecting Warden of the West as it tries to come upon her because she is stronger than fate, she and she alone, names are mostly something of a, you brought this upon yourself. The Grey Pilgrim didn't become a wanderer because he was to become the Pilgrim. He became the Pilgrim because he was a holy wanderer. The Hierophant doesn't look into the mysteries of the universe because he is to be the Hierophant. The Hierophant, the Apprentice, looked into the mysteries of the universe because that's what obsessed him ever since the destruction of his own entire demiplane. And thereby, he became the Hierophant. This, it can be written into people's characters, written into who they have built themselves to be. But for a great part, even if names aren't simply, hmm, I woke up this morning and I have decided that I am going to become the glorious tailor. If there is a glorious tailor, somebody who is a great tailor and an obsessive tailor and a whatever else tailors itself to the role would have really lived a life moving towards that, I would argue. There are... I'm, I'm, I'm trying to think through, and I feel like maybe one exception or maybe even one counterexample that lines up more with what we're seeing here is, if I recall correctly, Indrani's initial name basically gets chosen for her by Ranger. She's rescued by Ranger because Ranger sees something in her that's basically nothing at that point, and then Ranger gives her a bow. And there's a moment there. Indrani has a feeling or there's a there's something going on behind the scenes there. But I don't know if that truly counts because Ranger is Ranger and reality kind of shifts itself to align with what she wants. So maybe that's a special case. That's an example of a fully fledged name producing an apprentice name, which happens. I don't think it was necessarily... Inevitable is a difficult word concerning its fate, but I don't think it was necessarily a given that the son of the warlock would be the apprentice. But because the warlock took an interest in teaching and his son took an interest in learning, the apprentice was formed. Point of order here that I there's an important distinction. I don't think Archer is an apprentice apprentice name to Ranger. I think Indrani was an apprentice to Haisu. That's I, very true. There's a, a, a distinction there that I, I do think, because obviously Squire is an apprentice apprentice to one of the knights, and Apprentice is an apprentice to a mage, specifically the warlock. But this is, this is yeah, the people are apprenticed there. The person is an apprentice, the role is not. Like so many other things, Haisu is what other names are, but so much more. Yeah, very true. So some are born named, some achieve namedness and some have namedness thrust upon them i think that makes sense and there's obviously a an acceptance even if it's thrust upon you a you have to make the decision even if the decision seems to not be something you can do yourself clearly it is i when you started talking i knew you were going to bring up cordelia so i'm, I'm glad that you did <laughs> it's very important oh absolutely she functions as the most important, metaphysically, person in the entire story who is apart from names and ruts. Even Catherine, who operates, I think, in most of the book without a name, especially if you count Sovereign of Moonless Nights as not a name but a fey title, she's always within the neighborhood of namedness. She's always 
moving towards or holding on to scraps of or mm. forming a name. Hasenbach, it's just a person. And what a person. She spends a little time heading towards a name, but isn't a big fan of that. <laughs> I love her. Hey, so we, I love Hasenbach. We hate the pilgrim. Do we have any other points to hit? Uh, we were talking about Kat's understanding uh, of name lore, I suppose, uh, and just not completely understanding the how powerful names are and what they're capable of. So after the initial pitch, uh, Black talks about, I'm not trading this, you're my apprentice, you're an asset. Kat closes her eyes to consider, and she has the thought, Squire it wasn't exactly the most powerful of the names out there, but it would lead to something else, and until then I'd be at the side of the second most powerful person in the Empire, learning all I could. Squire wasn't exactly the most powerful of, na- of the names out there. Feels like, yeah, you're right, it makes sense that that would be the case, but she seems to say it with a lot of authority. Has she heard of the name Squire prior to now? How does she know how it fits in? It's just, it it feels like information that she has decided is true in that moment. Ah, so already she has the learn aspect creeping in. <laughs> Dreamly minor point. In this section, we read, by the grace of the heavens and heavens forgive me. My notes on those two are simply, they are not watching and they will not forgive you. Yeah. And we are attempting to keep track of when her sort of comments like that begin to shift. When Catherine considers the offer, she operates initially, and I think reasonably, based on the information she has and the story she's read, under the assumption that, okay, Black wants me to take this, and if not, he'll kill me and leave me floating in the lake, obviously. And Black disabuses her of the idea. He says, you return to the orphanage. I'll see to it that you're put on the rolls at the college with the first season's tuition paid. I'll look forward to your service in the legions. And I wonder, and I wonder what game is he playing exactly? I would say pretty obviously putting her into the legions and getting her started along that path would be ensuring in some ways that no hero is going to rise. She's on a path that he's more convinced she would be on anyway now having talked to her. She doesn't have the heroic mindset. A path that would benefit the Empire and not be a particular risk to anything he cares about. But why does he care enough to make that investment when he could kill her and leave her floating in the lake? Which seems very clean, especially considering how he's dealt with other proto-heroes. So I know she disabused him of that notion. I think it's simply that he's aware at this point of a couple of things. One, Kat's a pretty capable individual, and he is somebody who values assets. And I think he assumes that she will, in fact, climb the ranks and become a useful soldier for the Empire. Even if she's trying to benefit Kahlo, she's doing it through the apparatus of the Empire in a way that's beneficial. And it's not like Black is opposed to Kahlo functioning better. By no means. So having somebody who, using the bureaucracy, makes Kaluans happier and still pay their taxes, that's a win-win. The other side is very possibly, she has now had a couple of days with Black and Captain and Scribe. She's learned a bit about name lore, she's seen behind the scenes of the calamities a little bit, and then she's put away from that, but still within their reach, within their influence, in an evil area, you know, around evil people, capital E, evil, to be clear, in a system that 
she will chafe against a bit with authority, but she'll do well in. I think he might be banking on her coming into a different name that's still beneficial to the Empire. He seems to be operating under the assumption, and by seems to, I think pretty explicitly he's operating under the assumption that Kat's on the path towards a name. He wants it to be Squire. He thought she it might be Hero of some kind, a hero of some kind. And I think this is just a way for him to, if he doesn't get a Squire, turn her path a bit and get a useful villain out of the deal. I'm convinced. Assuming, of course, that he's telling the truth, which he could convincingly not be doing, though I am convinced, he does lapse into deceit immediately thereafter by saying, I already have followers and equals, as well as a superior, if only the one. And that Black wants us to think he has a superior is a really interesting piece of misdirection, I would think. This is a one-liner joke. We can move on. All right. I... So following the discussion, we move on to the sort of central pivot of the chapter where things go from a conversation with Black to some weird stuff. And that pivot is, of course, a stabbing. (laughs) And, you know, Kat and Black, they love each other. They're father and daughter. They're friends. They're mentor and apprentice throughout this story. They do a bit of stabbing, don't they? Different families have different ways of expressing their love. <laughs> I suppose so. <laughs> I I do want to comment on, again, in the blink of an eye, he was on his feet, moving quickly, much too quickly for someone wearing plate with a sword in his hand. This speed thing is something Cat focuses on a lot. I think partially because it's an easy way to demonstrate power. It's an easy way to visualize power. But it's also strange that... Much too quickly for someone wearing plate. I don't know, Kat. She seems to have this idea that plate armor just makes you <laughs> sluggish. And this comes up a few times down the line. And it's it's weird to me to have a named person be slowed by plate at all. And obviously Kat's still figuring out what that means for named and for especially a Marshall named who can get away with wearing plate. But this line is just amusing to me. And I, it, it, it comes up later on. And Kat's concern over how fast people can move in armor is, it's endearing. It's fun. I don't understand what you're talking about, though. I have here a quote from the Player's Handbook from the yeah. 3.5 edition of Dungeons & Dragons. Mm-hmm. Uh, speed. Medium or heavy armor slows the wearer down. and if you look at the accompanying chart, uh, full plate has a speed of 20 feet uh, for a user at a 30-foot speed, and a 20-foot speed person is 15. So that's actually a significant penalty. Well, I guess this is just evidence that Black is, in fact, a dwarf. Surprise. I suspect the overlap is such that a majority of our audience will enjoy that joke thank you uh but the kids these days with their 5e with their 5e and their pale lights and their that said read pale lights it's very good the last thing before we discuss the stabbing itself i think we've we've got our fingers clenching i think that's worth bringing up our fingers clenched this is how it starts isn't it how villains are born when you decide that something is worth more than being good my fingers clenched and unclenched i took a deep breath and let it out more than her dramatic statements about this is how villains are born the fingers clenching are those inaugurate those baptize this new path 
It's Cat. It's finally Cat. Our little baby is all grown up. <laughs> What's the Mushu line? My little baby, off to destroy people. So Cat is stabbed. Does she manage to scar Black? Uh, hmm. I doubt it. She does try to scream, but there's a hole in her lung. That can, might be scarring if he weren't, you know, the Black Knight. Somebody he stabbed looked like they wanted to scream. The poor Black Knight, what will he do? <laughs> but Cat wakes up and is in a swamp with a sword sticking out of her chest. And we sort of have... Oh, that fact takes her a moment to realize. <laughs> Which, she's very disoriented. I'm not going to fault her. Mm-hmm. She did have to spit the scum water out of her mouth before she realized there was a sword in her chest. To be honest, the presence of something unwanted in mouth as opposed to horse yeah. And we're introduced to the first of the evil twins. Well, sorry, the first of the twins. The, this one is the explicitly evil one. And we really get our first back-and-forth snarkiness, not one-liner here or there, but it's Kat talking to herself. And that's kind of the platonic ideal of conversation within Practical Guide, if we're being honest. I have thought long and hard, and that is what it all boils down to. Everything else approximates such a moment. I think that's why these Cat and Black scenes we have now, and all the ones following, are so viscerally satisfying because we finally see the Grandmaster playing chess against herself. And chess in this metaphor is snark. In the swamp conversation, we do get another one of our beautiful firsts. When Catherine, the twin, meets Kathy, the, the OG, she puts her boot down on her breasts, closes her fingers around the hilt of the sword, gives a brutal push with her knee that dunks her head back into the scum water. I love having one pronoun. And she observes the sword and says, it's a pretty good sword. Goblin steel, better than the standard issue stuff. This is her first mention of goblin steel. We don't know about any of their other munitions, but we know they make good steel. Yeah, I, I, I noticed that too. I thought it was interesting that within Kat's soul, she's talking with herself. She still has enough of an awareness of what's going on around her to to be able to pick out that detail after having been stabbed with it. And I just appreciate that, that 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 level of detail is still in her mind that she's the, I don't know, detail focused tactician, even in this moment. And it's good that it was Goblin Steel. Like her doppelganger comments, if it were rusty, she could have gotten Lockjaw. Catherine obviously ends up rebuking the doppelganger, or in fact, both of them. So that is to say, using proper German pluralization, the doppelganger. But she does internalize something in this conflict, other than the blade, which was internalized before the conflict, but um, Tish. In the fight, OG Catherine says, so I should just go around stabbing everyone who does things I don't agree with? That sounds like a winning plan. And doppelganger Eins says, if you had a winning plan, I wouldn't mind. But you're not trying to win, you're trying to be right. And Catherine really does take that lesson to heart. And I think it's the seed out of which her motto grows. Justifications really do matter only to the just. Kat struggles with this idea for a long time, even if she claims that as her motto. And I think we see this now, even in what we were talking about not 20 minutes ago, that Kat can be a bit of a hypocrite frequently and is fine with that and i think this journey this 
soul searching quest as she calls it is good it, it it points it out she's pointing it out to herself and she mostly comes away with the wrong sort of takeaway she understands what the lesson is supposed to be and kind of just says nah yes she does plan more as she grows but i think a lot of that comes from black rather than this moment and sure she handles things better she matures i guess but a lot of what she comes away with is just hmm, if i have somebody who says things i don't like i just have to fight them better than they can fight me or strangle them and i know earlier i was talking about cat's subtlety and her her manipulation but let's be honest she's kind of a living wrecking ball and uses that just as much and uh it's nice to see that she does that even within her own soul before we get too far into this conflict uh, you know i mentioned the platonic ideal conversation i'm on this reread i am really reminded multiple times why this story hooked me and apparently so many people so quickly why it took very little reading to fall in love with this just everything about this setting these characters but the the way that characters talk the dialogue is done so well there's this you know the, the doppelgangers you know it's cat she's snarky she's she tells a lot of lies they she makes fun of herself but the line where the actual fight begins you know there's the the sucker punch uh there's some sort of structure i could glimpse i squinted to see it better that was when she socked me in the jaw back into the water i went landing with a splash and an aching mouth light again the devil told me cheerfully when i resurfaced we're gonna fight just i there's little within there's little that i've read that brings me as much joy as that one line it's so it's so fun it's so very the evil twin cat it's it's very much this story i don't know the just the happily oh, i lied we're gonna fight <laughs> and cat's response basically just being i'm going to drown you it and again the follow-up there the 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 soul guide whatever responds with that's the spirit she grinned rolling her shoulders see what i did there spirit it's funny because i'm it's what we were talking about there's this dramatic soul searching journey cats in this fight for her life in a swamp with a sword against an opponent who is representing the evil side of her that she has to kill and there's a couple goofy lines thrown out that really just characterize cat without taking away from the moment and it's just so well done goofy lines you say but within the context they are wry, and there is room for a little wrying sure. in any text. They're they're wry, and they're intentionally provocative. Like Kat even comments on that. This person is absolutely trying, trying to rile her up, and doing a pretty good job of it. Like she knows her. The other great thing about the exchange, however, is that it's our I think first embrace of Kat's other motto: lies and violence. It's very true. I hadn't even thought of that. That it's they're pretty directly attached right here in let me check, chapter four. Is E E the greatest mind of a generation? Yes. Is he the greatest mind in all of literary history? I mean, I wouldn't argue with it. I don't know that I could bring up any compelling evidence against it, so I think you're right. So we have a couple things happen all at once that I think are, are worth discussing. First, my issue is that you're bleeding heart. Kathy. We don't often see Kat get a name other than Catherine, Cat, or a title. And Kathy is such a bold choice 
to just show up here and never be used again as far as I'm aware. It really caught me off guard on this read. <laughs> but the follow-up to that, you've got all these pretty notions about how things should be. But when the hard choices are going to come, you'll flinch. You have a chance to get some real change going, but you're going to end up choking on that self-righteousness. This character goes on to say, that's what I'm here to prevent, basically. We don't want to actually be bleeding from the heart. We've talked about this, the follow-up to that being the discussion about the planning. And Kat's flinching at the hard choices is kind of a constant discussion up to nearly the very end with Black, or up to the end with Black, and also up to the end of the story pulling the trigger at the, in the critical moment, hesitating before that, you know, that, that growth, I guess, depending on how you want to value, what your values are around making hard choices. And, but it starts off here with her getting the better of this thing, this soul construct of herself that you get the great, not ending line, but what could have been the end of the chapter with, she gurgled out a laugh, a bloody smile stretching out her lips. What are you laughing at? I asked. You didn't flinch, she rasped. It didn't take Kat long to learn it, or to learn as a strong one there, to prove her soul doppelganger wrong. Kat is, Kat's the kind of person I think who uh, doesn't flinch, but does hesitate. She, she struggles to make those hard choices at points, not always. But in the end, she kind of does what she needs to do, including killing a thing that looks exactly like her except more warlike wow killing herself as a strategy i wonder if this will ever come up over and over and over and over and over and over in the story surely not that would be absurd well that's all the time we have for today folks join us next week on podcast guys talking erratic errata as we discuss tactics twins and towers Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Erratas is a fan-made podcast discussing Erratic Erratas, a practical guide to evil. Check out the full serial at practicalguidetoevil.wordpress.com. Intro music for this episode was The Cradle of Your Soul by Lemon Music Studio. Music for the epigraph was Clavit Cimbalo, late Middle Ages music from the 16th century by Julius H. Outro music, which even now is elevating my voice to the realms of the divine, is Price of Freedom by Daddy S. Music. The music is provided by the generous license of pixabay.com music. Go and support all the artists who make this work possible by providing their stories and sounds free of charge. If you'd like to support this podcast, follow us on Twitter at TheLongPrice. Do you have questions, comments, or contributions? Are you overwhelmed by the urge to correct our errors? email us at thelongprice at gmail.com. If you'd like to materially support our work, find our Patreon at patreon.com slash p-g-t-e-e. Join the ranks of our patrons and be called by name, receive personalized stories and art, or even join a PGTE-inspired RPG. We implore you, don't consider joining unless you're already supporting the artists who make all this possible. Next week, Chapter 5. Roll.